Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 256, and today's guest is Rahul Chattavetti, founder and CEO of Clora. I was excited to interview Rahul for our podcast since his background before starting Clora is very deep in the life sciences industry, as he was the head of clinical development at several biopharma companies. It was an opportunity to explore this industry, as I haven't interviewed anyone with this same level and depth of experience, so we talk about the drug discovery and clinical trials process, which is fascinating. But it was this industry knowledge that led Rahul down the path of starting Clora to address a critical pain point in the life sciences industry, and that is the lack of resources. And when I say resources, I'm referring to talent and having the right expertise at the right time during the drug discovery process. As you'll hear, it takes over 300 unique skill sets to bring a drug to market. Well, Clora is helping to solve this talent crisis with its intelligent platform that efficiently matches life sciences companies with flexible on-demand expertise. The company is venture-backed by Spark Capital, Social Capital, Notation Capital, and others. Rahul is also a fellow podcaster, as he is one of the hosts of the Biotech 2050 podcast, which I would definitely recommend checking out if you are interested in learning more about the biotech and life sciences industry. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover lots of other great topics, like what's the biggest difference between building a tech startup versus a life sciences company, Rahul's background story and why he pursued a career in the life sciences industry, his experience leading clinical development across multiple companies, all the details about Clora in terms of their mission, the details on their platform and how it all works, plus growth plans ahead, advice for founders on building a company in the health tech industry, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you're just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and so much more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rahul. Rahul, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks so much for for chatting today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, in my, let's see, I'm over 250 episodes into this podcast now, which is super exciting. But I was thinking back, I'm like, I don't think I've ever talked to an entrepreneur because my, you know, my world is the tech industry. Um, So you're a crossover entrepreneur from uh, life sciences. And I don't think I've ever had an entrepreneur on the VentureFist podcast that has been deeply entrenched in the life sciences area, but then moved over to tech. So I thought a perfect question to kind of kick this podcast off is what's the biggest difference between building a tech startup versus a life sciences company? Yeah, yeah, and, and hopefully I won't bore your your tech oriented listeners too much. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think the biggest noted uh, biggest difference that I've noted is the capital intensive nature of drug development, both in terms of you know you need lab space and the capital expenditure on equipment, et cetera, is is significant, and that's why you see you know seed rounds and Series A rounds and in biotech companies generally be you know anywhere between ten to hundred million dollars, uh, whereas on the tech side you know you can do a lot more with a lot less. And I think a lot of this also ties into 
the regulatory constraints that exist in the life sciences space uh, for good reason. You know, it's, it's all about patient safety. Um, and so for good reason, there's a lot of regulatory constraints in terms of how quickly you can run and what you can do in the life sciences space as opposed to the, to the tech space. I think those are the, the two biggest differences. I think one of the commonalities is that both tech and life science startups require a ton of experimentation to really figure it out, but it's very different types of experimentation, right? On the, on the tech side, it's, it's you know, things like um, growth marketing and, and how do you acquire new users? Um, and you can, you can iterate on that really, really quickly. Whereas on the life sciences side, you need to run a bunch of experiments, but again, the ability to, uh, in terms of how quickly you can run those experiments uh, and identify service providers, et cetera, is just, is just orders of magnitude different. And what about with hiring too? Because I was thinking about that where uh, I actually dipped my toes a little bit in the biotech industry to see if there was a VentureFizz-like website for helping biotech companies with employment branding. They're all hiring, they're raising money. It's the same formula. But then when I stuck my nose in, the hiring was very different because it was very much you know, uh, network oriented. And I think it might be evolving a little bit with some other companies that I've seen doing a lot more social media pushing, but it was definitely like a close. You're kind of hired who you knew. Yeah. Um, that is certainly uh, part of the challenge in, in biotech, you know, especially we're in, we're in Boston. Um, we're in one of the main hubs for, uh, for biotechs and it, it does come down oftentimes to the strength of your network. And I've, I've heard people lament when, when they're moving from other ecosystems to, to Boston that you know, it can be a, a bit of a closed uh, ecosystem initially when you get here um, and that fundamentally changes your, your ability to hire. And obviously that's you know, one of the things that we're trying to solve for. Um, uh, I also think that up until very recently, pre-pandemic, um, you needed to be in the office five days a week uh, and, and folks are certainly have evolved their own thinking around um, what what hiring looks like and, and the geographic constraints that that we've been applying to, to biotech and, and perhaps we can loosen those up a little bit. Well, needless to say, I did not pursue the biotech venture fizz like and I'm like stay in your lane, Keith, stay with what you know. So instead we went we went national with venture fizz. So uh, all right, let's let's uh, rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, sure. So um, I was born in, in North India and lived there until I was about five years old. Um, my family then moved to Flushing, New York um, for just pursue job opportunities uh, here in the U.S. and then did my first three years of schooling in Flushing uh, and then moved back to India and did fourth, fifth and sixth grade there and then eventually moved back to New York uh, halfway through the sixth grade. So I've been, been in the U.S. Uh, since then. So provided me uh, uh, an interesting perspective, uh, having, you know, been, uh, brought up both in India and the U S, um, and, and really valued that. And let's say as a kid, I was, I was, I initially was fairly quiet, um, uh, and a bit of a nerd in the, in the early days, and then started to become a lot more precocious as I got older. All right. So you decided to study biology at Brandeis. What was the, were you always into the sciences like math, science, chemistry, or yeah, I, I was. And, you know, like uh, perhaps a lot of uh, South Asians, uh, there was uh, cultural and family pressure to, you know, pursue things like medicine, as an example. And mm -hmm. uh, when I was at Brandeis, I was I was pre-med um, for a little bit and, and was exploring, you know, what was at the path that I that I wanted to go down and and uh, didn't end up. Uh, thankfully, I, I would have I think I would have uh, I didn't have the patience to pursue uh, a career in, in medicine like many other folks. Uh, um 
but you know, even my brother was was pursuing medicine and and decided, hey, this is this is not for me, and and pivoted into into the tech world. And I think um, that was an interesting inflection point for me as well as just taking a step back and, and think about like what is it that I that I want to do, and it, it wanted I wanted to do something in the life sciences, uh, but not necessarily uh, pursue a career in medicine at that time. So what'd you do like first jobs out of school? Yeah, so right out of school, I uh, tutored college kids with learning disabilities in science and math. Uh, for a little bit um, as I was trying to make my way into the life sciences sector and then made the jump into um, into biotech. I joined a, a small ophthalmology CRO in, in Massachusetts called Aura. Um, I spent about four or five years there. Um, it was a great crash course in uh, in the business of, of biotech and, and how drug development um, uh, is currently taking place and, and also just explored a bunch of opportunities around you know, can we take uh, this CRO global and we're limited by the number of patients we have here in the US. So started to started to dip my toe into, into business development and international expansion while I was there as well. Got it. Okay. So what did you do after that? Yeah. So uh, then went to another CRO um, and kind of went all in into, into the sales world um, and quickly realized, yeah, it wasn't for me. I, I missed, uh, I missed, uh, the execution of clinical programs and being more directly tied to uh, uh, to helping to bring new therapies to patients. The, the, the team was great. And then I, I went to a company called Avidro. It was started by a guy named David Muller, who's one of the founders of uh, LASIK technology. Um, so it was VP of clinical there. Um, really interesting experience there where we scaled the team from effectively when I joined 20, 30 people to 200 plus. My team grew to uh, 30 plus folks. And that was really my first management experience and, and high pressure management experience where, you know, we were running uh, very complex trials in, in rare diseases um, and <clears throat> had to navigate both um, being able to recruit patients in, for rare diseases and, and build out a team and keep costs low because we were a, we were uh, a relatively um, uh, nimble startup. We, we raised a bunch of financing over time, but in the early days, I think it was, a, it was a really good exposure for me in terms of being able to do a lot with a little. Um, and, and really, it started to think about the Clora model even back then, which we'll, which we'll get into, but what's, what's broken about the industry and how can we run faster? We're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to get therapies approved. So that was a, that was a great learning experience and also just a great management experience for me. Um, after that, went to a medical device company where we were looking to um, uh, to treat type two diabetes and obesity. So that was my first foray into the medical device space. Uh, and then, um, actually started consulting for a while after that, uh, and was consulting at a number of different biotechs and then, uh, started working with the team over at flagship pioneering now best known for launching Moderna and a number of other, um, biotechs and, and was the second executive hire at a company called Kaleido Biosciences, where we were looking to, effectively drug and modulate the microbiome. Uh, um, really, really interesting concept. Um, uh, took the company public uh, in the early years while we were there, and then also had started to effectively moonlight and was working on, on Clora as a side project while working full-time at Kaleido and, and doing some consulting work here and there. All right, so before we get into Clora, because I do wanna geek out a little bit about the whole life sciences industry. so. Clinical development, clinical affairs. So, like, what does that mean? And it's, it seems like it would be very hard to find patients that are willing to, you know, 
test drugs? Like, it just seems fast. Like I've never really done a deep dive into this world. So how does it work? Yeah, sure. So um, just to take a step back, the, the business of, of drug development um, is, is quite complex. Um, there's, I, I break down drug development into, um, let's say three phases. There's the discovery phase where you're in the lab, you're trying to either manufacture a new molecule or, um, or use something that's existing. You then start to test those molecules in uh, generally in animals, whether it be mice, uh, non-human primates, depending on the, on the disease, et cetera. And then clinical development is, okay, you've, you've now shown that it's safe in animals, it may work in humans, and now you start to test those, uh, those drugs in, in humans. And so you start to run human clinical trials. And so that's been the, the bulk of my experience has been running human clinical trials in order to get them uh, approved by the FDA and, and out to patients. Um, on average, uh, just as an industry overview, um, on average, it takes a drug anywhere between 10 to 14 years to, to make it to market. Um, companies are spending about one and a half to two billion dollars for every single drug approval. Uh, that includes you know, the opportunity costs of all the failed drugs along the way. Uh, for every single new drug that gets to market, there's about 5,000 that never see the light of day, that fail wow. along the way. And so okay. attrition uh, is, is and has continued to be a significant issue um, in, um, in the life sciences sector. And how do you do the patient recruitment? Do you like partner up with a CRO and that's what they do? They, I mean, physicians just know about these clinical trials to suggest it to their patients? Yeah, there, there's a couple of different models here. The the standard in our industry has been to outsource to contract research organizations or CROs. Um, the analog here uh, for folks from the tech world would be if you're outsourcing development work to an offshore um, uh, dev shop. Um, so that's been that's been the standard. There's a handful of companies, particularly in the early stages of development, that will do a lot of the clinical trials themselves uh, to keep tighter control uh, and higher quality and produce a higher quality product. Uh, in the early days as they're really trying to figure out what's the right patient population. Um, and then CRO's responsibility is to go out and engage with these physicians that have that are seeing these patients. And those physicians and their, and their sites are then responsible for recruiting patients into these clinical trials that meet the criteria that are set out for each clinical trial. Got it. And you need a very large population of trials to get through to the FDA and you got to collect all this data. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and it depends on, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it depends on the disease that you're going after. So for example, if you're going after something like type two diabetes or obesity, those trials tend to be fairly large, you know, three, four, 500 plus patients easily. Uh, if you're running safety trials, that's a few thousand folks. Um, and then, you know, over the last two decades or so really pioneered by Genzyme here in Cambridge, um, uh, folks have started to, to, um, look into rare diseases. And so those are, uh, those have much smaller patient populations, but there's a really high unmet need where there's perhaps not, not great uh, therapies out there. And so those trials tend to be smaller in terms of the number of patients you need to recruit, um, but complex because uh, the, the pool of patients that you're tapping into is much smaller than type two diabetes or something like that. And you also had the opportunity to work with the team at Flagship, which is this amazing group that I think was flying under the radar. Then Moderna kind of 
leveled up their exposure. But I mean, it's just an amazing group in Boston that continues to just make major advancements in life sciences. Yeah, they're um, they're remarkable. They're um, I think the the venture creation uh, part of that business uh, and the the amount of throughput in terms of company creation and new ideas that are coming out of um, flagship is is remarkable. I think there's a couple of other venture groups now that that have been doing something similar in terms of not just investing in 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 founders and their biotechs, but also uh, getting involved in company creation. So I think that's that's an exciting part of the ecosystem right now uh, is these these venture communities and venture groups starting to found their own companies as well. All right, so let's talk about Chlora. So you gave a little bit of a hint of some of the side projects, which is perfect. I, I love stories like this where it was a side, yet it morphed into something becoming, you know, obviously what you've been up to for a long time now. So talk about the background story of Chlora and how it came to be. Yeah, sure. So um, a little bit more background on, on just the industry. And what I had been seeing was that we as an industry have long wanted to operate in kind of a hub and spoke model, if you will, where you have your core team, you know, constantly tapping into external expertise. The reason that's the case is because we're one of the most heterogeneous and specialized workforces in the world. There's over 300 unique skill sets required to bring just a single drug to market. And what's, what's additionally unique about that is that you need to tap into that highly skilled expertise on an episodic basis. So for example, when you're in the lab, you need a certain cohort of people, but then when you get into uh, running animal uh, studies or human clinical trials, you need a very different archetype of talent around you. And so because of that, as you go from you know, inflection point to inflection point in developing a drug, you're always tapping into external folks. And that's why CROs have existed for a while. That's why consulting companies have existed for a while, et cetera. And um, I had been, I had been uh, challenged uh, across my entire career around how do we go about and find the right talent at the right time? This first happened at Avidro, where you know we needed to scale up our team pretty quickly to start running clinical trials. But then given that there's so much attrition and failure along the way, oftentimes then um, biotech companies need to then scale down. And outcomes can be fairly binary in, in this space. Either the, either the drug works or it doesn't work. And um, you know, obviously, as you can imagine, that's that's extremely challenging. That's an extremely challenging operating model for a sector where there's so much at play. Not just you know in terms of billions of dollars, but I think more importantly, and why so many of us are in this industry is to help bring new therapies to patients faster. And we haven't really evolved as as an industry in terms of operating models. And I think where this really hit home for me was during my time at, at Kaleido and working with the folks over at Flagship is, you know, if the one of the top five venture groups in the world are still are facing this problem as well, then every every single person is. You know, it's not it wasn't just like me and I'm I'm this crazy person where I can't recruit people, um, but every single company is is facing this challenge. And now what's happened is this is all precipitated into a, a, a fairly significant talent crisis across our industry. And you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk of what's going on in the tech world in terms of the great resignation, et cetera, et cetera. I think this has been, this has been going on for quite some time in, in biotech, which is that there's a ton of unmet demand, as in you know, less than 50% of all talent needs are met as in, uh, across the industry. Um, uh, it's one of the lowest across all sectors and 80% of hiring managers feel that there's a shortage of skilled labor. 
Um, and you know, one additional thing I'll say here is that we're all familiar with with Moore's law, um, but uh, Moore's law backwards, Irum's law is the observation that drug discovery is becoming slower and slower and more expensive over time, despite significant improvements in technology. So that's fascinating. You would think that the inverse would be happening, would be more efficient, but it's not. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, where the, the pace of um, scientific innovation has certainly accelerated, um, but for a variety of reasons, regulatory constraints, these operating models that I'm talking about, we're still operating in relatively archaic ways. And that was a big motivation for me to found Chlora was, can we fundamentally change how work gets done in order to bring new therapies to patients faster and, and fulfill the potential of all these amazing scientific innovations that are happening in, uh, in biotech and, and more broadly across the life sciences sector. So one of the key challenges of starting a company like Chlora is, uh, you know, chicken and egg, right? Do you get the demand supply? Like, how do you start to build out this, you know, core expertise and and getting the right companies to engage? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Every every marketplace business uh, has had this issue, and the way that we approached this initially was, you know, I just needed to validate the 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 need is, you know. Is, is every company facing this challenge? And is there, is there an opportunity here? And what we started doing in the early days, similar to many companies is just hack away at it, right? Let's get, let's get demand and see if we can, uh, we can find the right supply or talent far more effectively. And then we built, um, we built a, a supply acquisition engine around that to be able to figure out, well, how do you find the right talent given all of this specialization, 300 unique skill sets, you know, and we've taken a, a, a taxonomy approach of we want to truly map out this entire ecosystem of expertise. And then by doing so, we can then far more effectively acquire the right supply, uh, as well as bring on the right type of demand for us given, given the supply. Um, you know, uh, candidly, this is this has been something the chicken and egg problem is something that we've been um, uh, we've been thinking about for for several years and and we'll continue to do so, our approach was let's figure out what our wedge is. So what are the one or two functional areas of expertise where we can kick ass and really understand it deeply? And there's lots of demand and nail those, then figure out a playbook and then replicate that playbook from there on out. So what were some of those key areas that you were focused on initially? Yeah. So um, uh, to keep it easy on myself, um, I I focused on those areas that I knew well. So clinical development, clinical operations is where we, where we started out and then have expanded um, across, you know, now 50 plus uh, areas of expertise. And is there a large number of independent professionals that are looking for more project-based assignments? Yeah. Great question. So Uh, yes. Um, what, what we discovered in the early days was, you know, we knew that there was unmet demand. What we also found out was that there's about 260,000 independent full-time consultants across the life sciences sector. Um, as I mentioned, I was a consultant in the early days, and it, it can be feast or famine. You know, it, it's highly dependent, Keith, as you mentioned, on your network and how consultants were bu- building their businesses um, prior to Clora uh, was... Uh, heavily reliant on who you know in their ecosystem. And you know, we as a, most folks that are life science consultants aren't, aren't great in sales and marketing um, and they're, therefore tend to be underutilized. And this ecosystem is so fragmented now across thousands of low NPS service providers that are servicing both 
the consultants as well as the biotech companies out there. And when we started the business, we thought that there was a tremendous opportunity, $100 billion plus potential here to, if we're able to effectively map out this ecosystem of talent and then provide access to it on the for our suppliers, we can increase their earning potential, drive down utilization, and that then um, helps increase efficiency across the life sciences ecosystem, uh, because then we're able to deploy uh, the right people at these companies that, are, that have been struggling to find the right talent. So how, how does it work? So if a company does decide to work with Clora, like, are they you know, tapping into the network? And like, how does the matching happen where there's quality control? Or like, like how does the engagement pursue to the point? And then the business model, you know, do you take a percentage of the hourly revenue or however that works? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, uh, central to everything we're doing right now is uh, this data set of 5 million plus profiles that we have effectively um, is most of the folks that are professionals in the, in the life sciences sector. Then we've built data models to organize those folks based on things like what diseases do they have experience in? Do they have they worked in small molecules or gene therapy? What phase of development have they worked in? What's the mechanism of action? You know, just to, and I won't nerd out too much, but those are you know all the all the matching criteria that are required to match supply and demand in in this industry. And then we built a two sided marketplace on top of that. So customers come on and and um, they're taken through this wizard flow of we are asking them highly specific questions about what they're looking for. Um, we then take those projects live on our marketplace. Uh, we have 8,000 plus suppliers on uh, on the platform. They're able to self-select into those projects. And then we have ratings and reviews. Um, so along with vetting through software, um, we also have developed um, a vetting program where um, ensuring quality uh, is extremely important because, because uh, there's a high degree of risk here in everything we do in drug development. And many of us in our sector have had poor experiences, whether it be with suppliers or um, uh, or uh, service providers, et cetera. And so that was a core focus for us. And I've had my fair share of those as well. So that was a core focus is ensuring really high quality and coupling both um, the data models and, and, and software that we've been building out with our subject matter understanding uh, to deliver and thrill both our customers as well as our suppliers. Um, you know, oftentimes what, what's, what's happened for, for decades now in our sector is we get these nonsensical emails um, from uh, from service providers saying, hey, we saw that you are a clinical professional and you might be a VP or C-suite exec. Here's a project that's $40 an hour. And so there's a total mismatch. And you know, this, is, this, is not just, uh, this is not just the case in the life sciences sector, it's in, it's in many other sectors, but the, the problem is amplified given how specialized we are. And so we wanted to, we wanted to create uh, an experience for both our employers as well as our suppliers where we can precisely match ingest information based on everywhere that you've worked and everything that we know about the companies that you've worked at as well as user generated information to uh, give folks a storefront through which they can transact and and come online um, in, a, in a way that's very different than let's say a LinkedIn or anything else. How did you go to market with this? Like, do you actually have a sales team that's out there like engaging with, with companies that to tap into the marketplace? Because it sounds like once they know about Clora, they can just tap in themselves, build a project and hopefully get staff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, yeah, we have a sales team, um, which is which is rapidly growing. So if you're interested, uh, please check out Clora and the jobs that we're hiring for. Um, but yeah, we have, a, we have a sales team. We've been, we've been lucky in that a lot of our demand has come through organic sources. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tight knit industry. 
And so we've gotten a bunch of inbound interest. Referrals have been a key part of our growth um, across the sector. Um, since there's, you know, I think this is a problem that many folks have been facing and there hasn't really been a solution that's the right fit for our sector. Um, so we've been lucky there, but we're also doing, you know, outbound, we do marketing, uh, host a podcast that has been great to increase knowledge sharing across our industry, particularly for this next generation of, of biotech leaders, um, where we tend to be, you know, historically, we've tended to be a fairly closed um, industry. And there's a lot of talk now about the decentralization of, of biotech and improving knowledge sharing and making it easier for, you know, let's say patient groups, et cetera, to be able to help with the discovery and development of, of new therapies. So I'm really excited about where we're headed, lots of work to be done, um, but I think we're, we're headed in the right direction. I think the pandemic has really helped accelerate a lot of this innovation that um, needed to happen for, for several decades. So it's one of the, one of the few silver linings that I've seen uh, of the pandemic so far. Now you've raised outside funding. How was that conversation? Because it's not like you were a proven tech entrepreneur. You obviously had amazing credentials in the industry, uh, but you were you know, approaching you know, smart capital as an investor. So how are those conversations about getting initial capital? Yeah, it's um, look, there was, a, there was a lot of learning along the way. Um, you know, lots of rejection along the way. Um, I, I think in the early days, um, you know, I was treating it as if it was a scientific project, you know, where we, where we nerd out on, on data and, um, uh, and rather than the story and the mission and, and where we think the industry is headed. So, um, you know, like I think many entrepreneurs, lots of rejection, particularly when you're first time uh, entrepreneur and, and not and, and in a space that is, that is new to you from a, from a software perspective, as opposed to um, the life sciences perspective. And um, I had the good fortune of, of uh, meeting the folks at Spark Capital. I think some of our pre-seed investors were, were also amazing, you know, Ludlow Ventures, Notation Capital, um, Stefano Kim, who were, who were really influential in helping me think through what is that narrative uh, for a tech investor uh, so that they, they understand the magnitude of the problem and the potential upside, not just from a, um, from a, uh, from a gross revenue perspective, but in terms of how can we fundamentally change the trajectory of human health by improving a lot of these inefficiencies that have existed for decades now. All right. So what's the current stage of the company, like number of employees um, and of course, growth plans ahead. You talked, you were hiring salespeople, but I assume you're hiring beyond that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're a team of about 25 folks right now. We're based in uh, downtown Boston, but we have a distributed team all over the U.S. now. Um, we're hiring for a number of roles. So we're hiring for uh, so we're, we're planning to double in size over the next six months uh, or so. Um, uh, we see a tremendous opportunity ahead of us, and I think we've we've really spent a lot of time figuring out you know what is product market fit, and we didn't want to scale prematurely, um, but really nail that customer experience as well as that supplier experience, and then and then scale from there. So we're hiring for um, uh, VP of engineering, VP of sales. We're hiring on the product side as well as on the sales side. So every single functional group right now is uh, is expanding. One of the challenges for companies that have been growing throughout the pandemic is. Uh, you know, building culture. And if you are building a distributed remote workforce, like, like what's it like working at Clora as far as the culture? Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, we really try to bring folks on that are mission driven and believe in the, in the mission of Clora. And, and that is, you know, 
how do we help bring new therapies to patients faster by providing access to the modern uh, life sciences workforce to solve the current talent crisis? So I think, I think that's first and foremost, is they're, they're tied to the mission. And I think we have, we have five or six values that, that we really focus on. It's, it's all about the patients. That's why we're, we're in this. Um, we want to continue to innovate and get 1% better every day, um, have a great deal of empathy for both sides of the marketplace. When you're building a marketplace business and trying to build a community, really important to understand where everyone's coming from. Um, and I, I think what, what we've learned through the pandemic from a, from a cultural perspective is that um, we're looking to hire folks that are looking to fundamentally change status quo and folks that have the ability to not only think deeply about a very complex problem, but then being able to execute against that. Uh, it's that it's it's that blend that I think is so is so unique to find um, when you're an early stage company because you know we're not we're not necessarily hiring for lots of specialists. Um, we want we want folks that are amazing at their jobs, but then also are amazing at you know one or two things to the right or left of them as well. Um, and I think if uh, it's I think it's tremendous growth potential for folks, particularly that are early on in their careers. Um, labor marketplaces are are really complex, and I think there's a lot of perhaps orthogonal learnings along the way when you work in a labor marketplace in such a specialized field that you can then apply to wherever you go uh, across your across your career. So I think the you know having that growth mindset and having that tenacity to be able to do whatever it takes to break through walls because we are here for patients. We're here to help our customers help bring life-altering, life-changing, life-saving therapies to patients faster. Um, and those are the types of folks that we're, that we're looking to bring on constantly. What advice would you have for other first-time founders that are embarking into the world of entrepreneurship and building a health tech company? Yeah. Um, I fumbled with this one a lot um, because I was a non-technical founder from a, from a software perspective. And I felt like, you know, I needed, um, I needed folks in the very early days that had a technical background and kind of used that as an excuse to kind of get going, right? Like I need to find the right technical co-founder to help me do this thing. Um, and I think that was a, that was a mistake. I think it's, um, I think having the confidence in yourself that this is a big problem and that you'll figure it out. Um, and you'll surround yourself with the right people over time, but just get out of the blocks, you know, like, uh, um, just, just go out there and, and start to do it. You'll learn a lot and things will start to fall into place rather than kind of just being in your own head, thinking about all the reasons why not to do something or why something may fail. Um, because the, the opportunity ahead of you is, is so meaningful. Um, and, and, and that you're uniquely positioned and we are uniquely positioned as a company to be able to, to solve this. I think that was, that was one of the biggest learnings for me in the early days um, and, and making sure that I, that I then surrounded myself with the right people that had built amazing tech companies um, that had scaled labor marketplaces and, and got really lucky in the early, in the early years of having some, some great mentors um, that were willing to invest their, their time in, uh, in coaching me in terms of how to run a software company as opposed to a, a life sciences startup. In terms of recruiting, because you did come from a different industry, what was the hardest functional area to hire for? Yeah, um, I think in the early days it was it was product and engineering. You know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know, um, and um, tapped into 
these these advisors that I was mentioning to help me think about what is the what are what is the right skill set and how do you assess that skill set. Um, and so, you know, would have folks um, just run interviews as well for me after after you know I tested for the soft skills and the tenacity and and so on. The cultural stuff um, is what were they the right fit? So I think that was that was one of the more challenging um, areas for us to hire from. We we built a great engineering team in the in the early years and and had great leadership on that team as well. So um, I, I think the life sciences stuff is is easier. Although I will say that. Um, what we what we discovered was that folks that had been kind of entrenched in the life sciences ecosystem in terms of how it works and that everything was okay generally didn't end up working out um, because uh, when you're trying to change an industry um, you want those kind of free thinkers that have some experience in the in the sector uh, but also see kind of the the path ahead so I think that was a that was a needle that was uh, that we needed to thread in terms of what's the right archetype on the even from the life sciences sector that we're looking for. I was also excited to you because you have a great podcast yourself. Uh, it's called Biotech 2050. So as a fellow podcaster, I wanted to talk to you about if other entrepreneurs or companies are thinking about starting a podcast, like what, what is the, what does the podcast mean to you? Like, how does it help Clora? Yeah. Um, Initially, when um, buddy of mine, Alok, Tai, and I started the podcast, the impetus was to improve knowledge sharing across the sector. You know, outside of the major conferences in, in the life sciences sector, in the JPMs, the bios of the world, we tend to be fairly closed off. And I, I think that does a disservice, particularly to the folks that are early on in their career. And so what we wanted to do was bring on the best and brightest folks across the life sciences sector to, uh, to, share, their, to share their journey. To inspire others in terms of why pursuing a, a startup in, in biotech is worth doing, um, what were some of the mistakes that they made along the way, and then also sharing their success along the way as well. Uh, so that was you know that was that was central to why we started uh, the podcast. I think now what's what's been interesting has been um, meeting all the remarkable uh, founders and leaders across uh, across this industry and their varying paths to success and to leadership, you know, whether it be folks that have, um, that have been in, you know, started on the bench and had an idea or came straight from academia, or even folks that um, face personal hardship, had family members uh, that, um, uh, that were facing a rare disease and they wanted to figure out how for their son or daughter, what, what were the options there and found that there wasn't anything and they just decided to build uh, a company around it. And I think I've, I found those uh, stories to be just amazingly inspirational. Um, I think for, for Clora, you know, it's a, for us, it is very much a passion project, Keith, like, like it is for you. Um, but I think some of the, um, the, the interesting upsides for us has been being able to uh, stay on top of all the tremendous scientific innovation that's happening uh, across our across our industry and uh, and just expanding our own network um, with the folks that we work with um, and to help me help provide perspective around how folks think about the problem that we're solving uh, because I don't want it you know we're, we're certainly not an echo chamber I've been out of um, drug development now for a couple of years um, so I think that's that's been really impactful for us as well is to make sure we're keeping our our ear to the street and understand what's going on over the last five years since I've been out of the sector. 
Yeah. And I, I agree. Like when people ask me the question, like, should I start a podcast? I'm always like, you got to make sure it's something that you actually feel passionate about, because if you don't, it's going to become a slog. And when you're yeah. 30 episodes in, you're going to be like, Oh, I got to do that podcast thing. And like, it shouldn't be force fed. It should come just very natural. And uh, the founder journey, I just love hearing the different paths, different stages. Uh, it's just something I've always been gravitated towards. And I even remember um, like Jason Calacanis in his early, early days of his podcast, I would listen to it. And there were some others that I used to download to my MP3 player before iPods existed. So, and I drive to work with my cassette tape in the, and I would listen to this content already. As you think about podcasting, how do you self-identify? Do you identify as a, as an introvert or an extrovert? Is this something that came natural for you or, or you really had to force yourself? You know, what's fascinating. So my background is headhunting for, I don't know, like I started in 1998. So, uh, I ran my own search firm for 15 years. So my whole day was spent interviewing people about their journey. So the translation to that, to podcasting of what I do now was just an easy, natural extension. It was very, very simple where I'm like, I'm just having a phone interview with somebody, except now it's on zoom. And, uh, so yeah, it was very, very easy. It's been, uh, uh, but it's, it's been a fun, fun thing to do. And we're, yeah. you know, it's just never gets old, never gets old. So, yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're very, you're very skilled at it. You know, 200 plus episodes in, um, it, I've, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts and you do a really nice job of teasing out insights from, from folks. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I like the prep work too, because the prep work gets less, like some guests are like, Ooh, you, you, you did your homework on me. You, you went deep. I'm like, yep, yep. That's what I aim to do. So that's another, that's another, uh, uh, bit of information, uh, bit of, uh, advice then, uh, for folks that think about podcasts is like, do the homework. You know, I, th- I think it really leads yes. to a much richer conversation that your listeners get a lot more out of. Yeah. If you half-ass the, the homework up front, it's, you're not going to have a meaningful conversation. It's not going to be deep and you're just going to leave the audience hanging. It's, it's that deeper level of stuff where you identify things that this person is uniquely qualified to talk about that makes it special. So do the homework. All right. Top, top three apps you can't live without. Um, I'd say LinkedIn is, is up there for us right now, just in terms of like studying how they've built the, the community. I think that's, um, that's a big one. I think, you know, Instagram, uh, like many folks. And then there's an interesting one. So uh, there's lots of memes about this uh, over the pandemic where people got really got into plants. And so got really into, uh, into, into plants over the pandemic. And so there's a, there's an app called Plantin, uh, P-L-A-N-T-I-N, um, where you effectively like take a picture and it provides like a care plan. It reminds you when to water. I was one of those guys who was like overwatering. I was showing too much love to my plants and a lot of them weren't doing well. So it puts your plants on like effectively a care plan and watering schedule. That's been awesome. Wait a second. You just take a picture and it automatically generates yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. It that tells you what the, what the plant is. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm totally checking that out. That just sounds yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Amazing what the iPhone can do. Um, all right. So book recommendations for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, for entrepreneurs. Um, so in the early days, I think the art of the start by Guy Kawasaki, particularly for first time founders was, was, was really interesting. Um, I think, um, you know, this is not necessarily like entrepreneurial related, but, it helped me zoom out and see the bigger picture um, was actually Sapiens um, uh, in terms of just, you know, the, 
the how we're just like a, a blip in overall human history. And uh, you want to try to make the most meaningful impact while you're here um, uh, so that your uh, the way that you what you thought needed to happen, uh, given your generation, um, you you then apply that, you know, and, and I found that to be really inspiring in the sense of um, humans have been around, homo sapiens have been around for, for millions of years now, but um, what's the impact that you're trying to make and, and what do you think you're, uh, you want your legacy to be? So when you're gone, uh, for me, it's been, how do I want, how do I think the life sciences industry should operate um, given that? I think it's, it's, it's not your usual entrepreneurial book um, uh, recommendation, but that, that was one that I think really helped me zoom out and, and stay focused actually. On, on the work ahead because it, it is a slog, you know, it's never gonna go um, uh, as, you, as you think it is. And then probably, you know, one of the other ones is just zero to one um, is, always a, is always a good one. What do you like to do outside of work? Um, as I've gotten older, um, gotten a lot more into just physical fitness um, after a bunch of injuries, uh, you know, uh, recovery time wasn't what, he's, what it used to be. So, um, that's been, that's been really important. Watch a lot of basketball. I used to play a lot and after, you know, <laughs> injuries, I don't, I, I can't do it anymore. So, uh, watch a lot of basketball really into, um, really into music. And then, and then reading is, uh, is up there too. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great work that's happening at Clora and obviously all the great advice. Yeah, Keith, thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for making it so easy and, and conversational. You're, you're very skilled at this. So uh, I've took notes. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.